Hello again. Welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today is going to be different. Um, most of the time in this class, I suspect we're going to have this fairly basic pattern to our activities. We're going to read a text. We're going to, you know, think about it before we come to class. Maybe there will be a quiz or an assignment about it. We will finally get to class and we'll discuss that text. We'll talk about the historical circumstances that lead us up to it. We'll talk about the way that that text fits in with all the other things that we've read and how it sort of bounces ideas back and forth off of other philosophers. And that's all great, and I'm very much looking forward to doing that. But I find that in the first couple of weeks of class, things being very much subject to change at this point, um, that it's fairly unwise to try and uh, immediately start diving into deep philosophical texts while we're also trying to deal with the scheduling issues and everything else that's going on. Um, plus, I think it's just a good habit as philosophers in general uh, that we start by defining our terms. Um, and this is not the only class that I do this in. Like in my mythology class, usually at this exact same time, and I'm pretty sure that the well, the scheduling falls out this way uh, this semester as well. Like literally the morning before that I will that I teach this class, I will be defining myth in my mythology class the same way as I wanted to find love today. Um, so that's what I want to do. I want to talk about love. What is love in short um and as much as you know as much as these conversations are kind of tricks on my part like yes i absolutely do in fact want to talk about what is love but i also very much want to sort of like get you thinking about love like i want to sort of point out that this definition is actually way more complicated than anyone you know would initially think considering that we're talking about a four-letter word that is probably one of the most commonly used in the English language, or at the very least, one of the most commonly talked about. Um, as much as this is a feint, I also really do want to kind of get at this. Um, but the other side of this is, you know, for those of you who are expecting me to deliver this very intellectual and erudite lecture on the subject of love, I don't have one of those today. I am not looking at a note card as I record this. Heck, I've been thinking about this subject for weeks, and I do not have answers. What I do have is method. Um, and that's one of the things that I want to drive home here. Method. Um, how do you answer questions in philosophy is extremely important, perhaps even more important than the answers we actually come to. Um, so I want to talk about love, and I want it to be semi-formal and semi-informal. I want to sort of poke around at what exactly this word means in the English lexicon, and how exactly words even work in the English language and language generally. I want to sort of compare and contrast our notions of love with some of the more traditional ones that we're going to be bumping into in this class, and just sort of take a walk in the woods that is our understanding of interpersonal relationships, human love, whatever you want to call it. Um, so to start with, I want to ask the question, what is love? Um, and we can refine our method as we go, rather than trying to sort of like set out what are the rules to start with. 
Um, and I think the obvious answer is that I am likely to get. Like, upon walking into my class and asking the same question to a room full of unsuspecting students and managing to, like, rev them up to the point that, like, somebody is feeling courageous enough to actually raise their hand and volunteer an answer just so I can pick it apart and step on it and all of that. I suspect that the logical thing that most of us would do upon being asked a question, what is X, where X is just some word that we're all relatively familiar with, is we're going to type it into Google and see what happens. Um, now, I imagine if we do that here, and I will literally do it as I'm writing it, like, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, um, we're going to get a definition. We're actually going to get a few things, and this is actually really kind of amusing. Um, we get the definition from Merriam-Webster. Thank you, Merriam-Webster. This includes, at this point, um, the strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties, but this is only entry one of two. Um, so, entry one is strong affection for another arising out of kinship, or an attraction based on sexual desire, or an affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interest. And then we've also got an assurance of affection, like, I give her my love. Now we've got warm attachment, we've got the object of attachment, baseball was his first love. We've got unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another, such as the fatherly concern of God for humankind. And we've got a god, such as Cupid or Eros, a personification of love. We've got an amorous episode, like Love Affair. We have the sexual embrace, as in copulation. And we've got tennis, score of zero, because, you know, 40 love. And we've got Christian's God is love. And then we're on to a whole other entry, because we've also got the verb love, to hold dear, to feel a lover's passion, to take her desire actively, to thrive in. Like, even the dictionary definition of this one is massive. Um, it is not straightforward, which is actually kind of normal whenever you're talking about a word in the English language that gets used a lot. Like, if you want to just, you know, fry your brain looking at a dictionary definition, go look up the word the sometime, like T-H-E, the article, or go look up, you know, be, to be, or will, or something like that. You'll get these sorts of big, sprawling definitions that do not really narrow down or answer our question, but really drive home how many wild different uses actually love has, or any of these words have. Um, we've also got just the Netflix show. Hey, Netflix made a show. It's called Love. And therefore, of course, when you Google the word love, you're going to get that just as well as your definitions. Because Google seems to also be confused here. That's one of the hallmarks of just writing a word into Google. Yes, you are going to get the dictionary definition more often than not, but when you've got one that has this significant a role in our cultural lexicon, it's just going to get wild really quickly. So we've got a television show, we've got the dictionary definition, we've got a Wikipedia page, which is, P.S., massive! Like, it's got 64 citations from a variety of philosophers and other crazy writers. We've got an entire sidebar that talks about types of love, social views, concepts, each with dozens of entries. And then this is also part of a series on emotions. We've got relationships, we've got... This whole long menu about interpersonal love, cultural love, religious love, political views on the subject of free love especially, philosophical views, and then the list goes on. Like, 
what I want to very much stress right here and right now is that we are over our head already. Like as soon as we just type in the word into Google, we are already over our head as far as trying to sort out what love actually is. Oh, seriously, is there a movie from 2015 too? Thanks, IMDB. Good grief. Um, so this is not going to work. Like, as far as understanding what love is, trying to just go for the pat dictionary definition is not going to work, which is pretty much what I anticipated and what I expect we will discover pretty quickly as soon as I have a class sitting in front of me as well. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way, maybe we need to refine our methods a bit. Now, the one thing that I want to stress here is there are many different sort of approaches to trying to sort out what a definition might actually be, what our method could be for determining what love is. Um, if we were all Socratic, Platonic dialoguers, we might very well invite ourselves to look at, you know, the, the ideal form of love, try and determine what the characteristics of love are, the way that Euthyphro is trying to figure out piety with, with Socrates and the Euthyphro. Um, if we were instead taking a more Aristotelian approach, it might be a wise idea to survey a whole bunch of thinkers or people who have talked about love. And that's kind of what we're going to do in this class, so I guess that would be a pretty decent approach to take, although quite a time-consuming one and when all is said and done. Um, the two approaches that I find most useful for trying to get a kind of cursory definition of what you know, a word or what love in this particular case might actually be are examples and uses, which are not the same thing. Um, by examples, I mean in what cases, like what situations would we call love? Um, where would, you know, this concept appropriately exist? Where, where does it line up with our experience? Uh, where, when we are walking along doing our, our merry human phenomenal thing, where would we stop and say, that, that is love. Um, so that's likely what I would invite my students to do at this point, and I suspect I'd get a wide variety of responses, and in fact I'd encourage them. I imagine usually this is how this happens, but when given this sort of question you're likely to get bottlenecks. So I'm likely to get a whole bunch of responses that are somewhere along the lines of romance. Like, okay, let's start with romance. When do you say that you love someone? At what point? How do you know it's this appropriate moment? Um, which, of course, nobody knows. <laughs> um, there's, like, even this whole trope in sitcoms and movies and television where, you know, like, you have a character who is willing to say, I love you, to the other character, but the other character is not yet willing to say it back. Um, we have this whole sort of tying this idea together with the idea of commitment, that love somehow represents a commitment, that we don't want to use titles or boxes or, or characterize our relationships unnecessarily. We want to avoid calling something love until the last possible minute, which means that we're dealing with something scary, in a sense, something intimidating, something powerful. Um, but that's really all we can say about it at this point, because we don't even know what the difference is between not loving someone and loving someone. What changes 
when you in fact say, I love you. Um, and I think that's just already really complicated and tricksy. Um, because, you know, in some sense, nothing changes. Like, I can remember when I first said I love you to my wife and we agreed. Like, she said it to me, I said it to her. We did not have one of those awkward, drawn-out situations where we're totally avoiding it. Like, you know, Liz Lemon refusing to say I love you to her boyfriend. Um, that did not happen. We, we were both ready at that point. But what does that even mean, to be ready? Well, at that point, we knew each other well enough. We felt comfortable saying this. We felt comfortable being in this sort of quasi-commitment, this mutual acknowledgement that we felt this way about one another, this idea that our relationship was in its early stages rather than being sort of this quick and dirty relationship that would quickly come to an end. So love implies something serious about an interpersonal relationship, at least in a romantic setting, which, again, we are only at the very beginning of this discussion. It implies that there is a maturation of feeling, a deepening of feeling. Um, it implies that you, that you have gone from a cursory attraction to one another, like what we would usually call lust, and now have proceeded to the point that we actually care about each other, presumably as human beings. Like, we are invested in one another. Um, we would be dismayed if something bad happened to the other person. We would be hurt if the other person suddenly stopped loving us, or didn't love us back, or, you know, betrayed us in some way. Um, we are vulnerable now. There is a connection in the sense that, like, if you are connected to another object and it is rapidly torn away from you, you will be injured. Things will be pulled out of you. Um, like, I imagine a hospital IV or something. Like, if somebody just grabs it and runs away with it, you'll be sitting there bleeding for quite some time. Um, that's the level of connection we're talking about. And this definitely has, you know, plenty of, like, cultural, historical, artistic, philosophical basis. Like, when we talk about love in this way, you know, so much of our art and literature is devoted to characterizing this connection, characterizing this feeling. You know, how many songs from the 60s until now have been dedicated to, you know, this feeling that we call love? Um, never mind its sort of wider cultural significant something like John Lennon's all you need is love which you know is radically recharacterizing even the way we understand love in that sense this idea that it is sufficient to all our needs that the rest of the world can go screw if we have love that's all we really want or need from it period the end um but even then, like, now we're talking about relationships between these romantically involved people, and we're just looking at this moment, this transition from not loving one another to loving one another, and that itself is separate from all of the other markers in a relationship. Like, it is not the same as we've decided to start dating, nor is it the same as we've decided to get married. Um, nor is it the same as, you know, we've decided, like, to move in with one another, to, you know, bring our, our relationship to a new stage. And we understand our relationships, our romantic relationships at least, in terms of stages at this point, I think. Um, 
like, again, you watch any number of TV shows, any number of movies, and frequently they will focus on these stages. You know, so-and-so have gone from being work friends to finally starting dating. Hooray, there is our, you know, chick flick in the style of The Intern or um, The Devil Wears Prada or any number of things like that. These sort of, you know, let's... Let's finally deprioritize work and prioritize my relationship. Um, but then you also have, you know, the, the moment that you are willing to say that it is love. The, the sort of, now that we have been dating for some time, do we actually feel that we are, you know, committed to one another or connected to one another deeply enough to be able to say, I love you to the other person and mean it, whatever that means. Um, most of the time, the sort of advice to, you know, is it time to say I love you is you'll know it when it happens. Which is the least helpful advice in the entire world. Like, seriously, we are a bunch of philosophers sitting here in our classroom. We're, we're trying to figure out what the heck love is. And you're going to tell us you're going to know it when you've, like, what the hell does that even mean? Um, never mind the fact that this assumes that it is somehow, like identifiable, that we can track it down without somehow being able to track it down. <laughs> like, on the one hand, I think there's truth to this. Um, on the one hand, I think that it isn't something that we could potentially quantify, you know, pin down to the table, like stick under a microscope slide. Um, I think we could talk circles around it for ages and ultimately not to come to any conclusion, largely because I suspect we're not going to get the same answers from any two people in the class, insofar as how do you know when you are in love. Um, but then you also get into a sort of really tricksy subject of, like, can you be wrong? You know, as much as the, the that simple, straightforward, like, you'll know it when you feel it, seems to actually ring true, and I think it is something that is repeated over and over in our culture, is sort of the guidance that we offer most frequently to one another. We're also wrong so much of the time, or at least, like, in hindsight, we look back and we say to ourselves, you know, we were wrong. Like, I think of the, uh, the TV show How I Met Your Mother, and how sort of the conceit for the main character like, he's, his deal is he immediately rushes into these relationships too fast. He always says, I love you, too quickly. And, like, in the pilot episode, he tells Robin, I love you, on, like, their first date. And this is just dumb. Like, everybody recognizes that this is dumb. But the show is secretly hiding the fact that, no, he actually does. Like, it's this complicated, triple, quadruple blind where... You know, we, we are so familiar with this idea, with this problem. When do you say I love you? You know, when do you express your feelings? But also, it's very aware of the fact that, like, it can totally feel just overwhelming and very immediate and intense very early on, before it's appropriate. Like, the feeling that you have for this other person can be all-consuming, and you've never even talked to this person. And then we get into other questions, like, oh, well, is that creepy? Is that, you know, inappropriate? Like, can you truly say that, you know, I fell in love with this person at first sight when there's zero reciprocation, not even the opportunity for reciprocation? Like, can we, in fact, call that love? Which I think brings up a really interesting question, namely, is love a feeling?
Like, that itself seems to me to be a huge looming problem that's just going to be hanging over our heads this entire semester. Is love a feeling? Like, can you boil it down to a feeling? Is it something that can, in fact, strike you in the middle of the night or jump you like a mugger, the way that Bulgakov talks about it in, in The Master of Margarita? Um, is it something that can sneak up on you, take you by surprise? Or is it something that has to be built over a long period of time, whether deliberately or not? Um, is it something that can only exist after you've really gotten to know somebody, after you've you know built this time and energy and put all this you know, time and energy into one's relationship? Or is it something that can just suddenly come upon you just by looking into another person's eyes? Um, it's already complicated. And we can complicate it even more by looking at the kinds of relationships that we can run into where this sort of romantic love would be apparent. And P.S. We haven't left romantic love yet, just in case we were wondering about how deep this rabbit hole goes. Like, what do we think of all of the various sort of romantic comedy tropes that we run into? What about the guy who is pining for his beloved from a distance? You know, the, the sort of nerdy dude in the high school setting who is, like, doing all these nice things for this girl, 16 Candles style, but never actually has the courage to admit, like, while she's dating other men, that he's really this passionate about her. Is that love? Um, is either of them feeling love at this moment like is the girl dating this other guy can we say that she's honestly in love with this guy or is it just a fake because really here is the good guy the one who's been pining from a distance you know that's really where the truth of the relationship belongs like so many of these movies so many of these tv shows they operate they work because they build this fundamental tension they expect us to look at the situation and say there is a right answer to love and there is a wrong answer to love. Something that we feel on this very basic, very intimate, very straightforward level. Like we only need 10 minutes in the movie in order to show us that this person should be with that person and that person should be with this person and any other configuration, any other way that these people might be organized into couples is wrong. Like on a very straightforward level. How, what? Just, what? Like, how do we as human beings just do this on this basic level? On this sort of, you know, all we need to do is take like five minutes to look at the situation. We can automatically discern how people are supposed to be together. Like, how have matchmakers been a thing for decades, centuries? Like, this hallowed tradition in some cultures... Not to mention the sort of informality of, you know, people just arranging each other into couples and mucking about in each other's personal lives for as long as they have. Like, why do we get a thrill out of matching people up and finding out that they're compatible and feeling very sort of smug and vindicated by the fact that, yes, they were perfect for each other, as though love is just this sort of complex calculus of emotionality? Like, what is that? Can we really concoct love in the same way that we can, we're just asking the question, can we feel it? Like, is this something that boils up from this mythical compatibility, the way that, like, dating apps and sites tend to think? I mean, we're just, I mean, none of this is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this class, by the way. Like, 
as much as you know, philosophers and, and thinkers and theologians and psych psychoanalysts have spent all of this time talking about love, what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis is not usually the way that it's framed. Like, even the poets tend to not be that interested in the sort of mundane questions that embody love, and yet those mundane questions are huge, overwhelmingly huge. Um, like, at least, again, we're talking about stuff that we are seeing on a regular basis on TV shows, in movies, and arguably, I suppose, those are our poets of today. But still, just... This is a given. Like this is a this is a structural question. This is something we are programmed to do by the repeated exposure of us coming to these movies and shows and, and media over and over and over again. This is not something that anybody is making a point about. This is something that is assumed. This is something so basic to the human condition that nobody even bothers to write about it. The fact that we in some situations think that we can like arrange a perfect relationship and not even in the sense of like an arranged marriage that's a whole nother question for a whole nother day like love and marriage have always had a tricky sort of relationship but now they're mo more intimate than ever and yet they're more complicated than ever like back in the day like you watch you know fiddler on the roof or something and you have this sort of glimpse into the old ways of matchmaking and stuff and it's this you know conceit throughout the musical that you know the the father's daughters tevia's three daughters are all marrying various degrees of inappropriate husband uh, the first one falls in love with someone who's kind of out of the class, and the second one falls in love with someone who's very much not Jewish, and the third one falls in love, and it's just like, no, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. Why do we know this? Why do we recognize this? Why is this compelling to us? Why is this drama something that draws us to it, like a moth to a flame? Like... Why do we find the mechanics, the calculus, the mathematics, the, the organization of love so profound and simultaneously mysterious, so simple and straightforward that we can identify immediately that this is a bad mistake, that this is going to be a giant train wreck, and yet also be so confused about it in our own lives that we can't even determine whether or not it's appropriate to say, I love you. Like... How is this all true? How does this all fit within the realm of our experience? And then you blow it out. Then you blow it out. Now it's suddenly like we can talk about not just love and romance, but love like between a father and daughter and between a daughter and father. Between, you know, a married couple that has been around for ages where I love you has been said so many times that it's actually decayed to the point that now that we're thinking about divorce. Or alternatively, it hasn't. And this couple has been together for 40, 50, 60 years. It's become something so mundane and so banal and yet so powerful that it is kept together a couple in this way. And I want to stress, like, we have a lot of assumptions about the way that love works, probably more than we know. Um, and a lot of that will depend on the sort of grand scope of human experience, what we have had in our lives to show us as far as, you know, love in action, so to speak. And nothing is off the table, because I don't want sweeping generalizations. The reason why I'm bringing up all these tropes, all of these 
like romantic comedies and, and sort of trite ideas about love is because a trite things usually come from a place of honesty and truth that's why they become trite in the first place but also b because nothing is off the table here because i want to consider love in the case of the you know widespread assumption that love is difficult and complicated and does not endure you know all those movies and television shows about you know people who have fallen out of love whatever that means and have are ultimately considering a divorce or splitting up after a long time and also the fact that sometimes it works like gangbusters and you do in fact have couples who stick around for 50 60 years and we would be remiss to call that love um, or rather we would be remiss not to call that love like whatever artificial conditions may be in place and yes there will absolutely be the naysayers the ones who say you know the 50 60 year old they're just doing it out of habit or they're just it's, it's not love anymore it's something else you know who are we to say who are we to reject this um if anything i suspect the couple that has been married for 60 years knows more about love than any of the rest of us who have not particularly who have not achieved that particular milestone they have succeeded in a way that we have not. But at the same time, we consider the person talking about divorce to be honest in a way that we frequently are not willing to confront, as though the, the repeated retellings of the 60-year marriage are in fact a sort of myth, something untrue, something trite, something that we tell each other is to console one another, um, to sort of promise one another. It's the milestone that is set up when we meet at the altar and we say, yes, I will till death do us part. Like, when we say that, there is some sort of assumption that there is a permanence to our feelings, to our relationship, that really isn't guaranteed, that isn't true. Um, and yet, like, already we're so wrapped up in cultural assumptions and different perspectives you know layers and layers and layers and layers and i tried to get us out of romance but here we are we're, we're right back where we started like how does this happen how do we simultaneously think it is honest and brave to challenge the idea that you know love is permanent and unconditional while also there are definitely examples of people who have pulled this off who have performed the magic trick, who have done the impossible, so to speak. And who should we be taking as our reference point? Like, that's already one of the problems that we're running into here. What counts? And for that matter, who gets to do the counting? Like, if we go another step from where we are now, we're sort of asking the question, can there be true and false love? Can love be wrong? Can love be broken? Can love, at the outset, be incorrectly identified? Um, and we all know of cases that this was the case, that, you know, like, the family and friends of a couple rushed them into a marriage, and now they are very unhappy, or very much over their head. And now what do we say about it? Do we say that, oh, it was a horrible mistake, they never were really in love? Or were they in love and it just fell apart? Like, can your love, in fact, fade and die? You know, there's there are serious questions to be dealt with here as well. Like, if we are assuming, if we take at, at the outset the assumption that love is unconditional, that it is permanent, that it is some lasting connection, 
then we are kind of forced into this situation where we acknowledge that love can be incorrectly identified, that what they had was not love. Um, it was just an infatuation. It passed after a certain period of time. Um, but if we don't have that assumption in mind, if we take the alternative possibility that love can be fleeting, that it is something that you know comes and goes, that it is not something that is sustained, well, then the aberration becomes the 60-year-old married couple. Like, they've been together for years, um, and their love has endured, question mark. Like, we might shed some doubt on it. We might say, oh, it's not love, but then how are we... What is our authority? Love, we can't even identify that far. Like, on some level, I suspect we all do harbor this notion that love is unconditional, that it is permanent. Um, if only because we keep talking about it this way. If only because we keep insisting on finding this. Like, the very idea of soulmates, this idea that, like, there is one person out there in the world, or maybe multiple, who knows, who could potentially be your perfect complement, who you belong with in some transcendental, metaphysical, you know, fate and karma kind of way... The fact that we still insist on talking about it in that light suggests that we do have this idea of love as something permanent and transcendent. You know, heck, Christopher Nolan talks about it in freaking Interstellar. Like, everybody made fun of him because it was, you know, clunky and, and, and typically Christopher Nolan cold. Like, Christopher Nolan is not a famously emotional filmmaker. Um, people made fun of him about it, and yet... Even to this person who is famously unemotional, even to this, like, artist who is typically distant, he recognizes it. He tried to get at it. Like, he made an entire movie where, you know, love could literally transcend space and time. Like, he's working so hard at it. And we criticize him not because he's wrong, but because he's clumsy about expressing it. Like, what?! Just, where are we on this subject? Um, Alright, now I'm going to try again. We're going to try and break out of the romance thing. I, I have no idea whether we will succeed or fail, but we're going to try and like break out of that orbit. Because, again, it's way beyond this. Like, we keep talking about it in terms of lovers. We spent a good half hour talking about it in terms of lovers, in terms of romantic attachment. Eros, so to speak. Um... And now let's turn our attention, because we do use the same word, whether for better or worse, to talk about parents and children, to talk about friends, to talk about, you know, deep connections entirely apart from the romance. Like, you can say, I love this person, and it could be two people who might otherwise have romantic attachments, like two gay guys or two gay women, two, you know, heterosexual like, or a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman, and yet not be referring to it in this romantic sense. You know, I have female friends who are, we're all hetero, and I would say that I love them, and yet I am not referring to my wife, and nor do I expect my wife to be jealous in this particular case, because it is of a fundamentally different kind, like something that I would never want to marry, so to speak. Um, and yet still very much endures. And likewise, I would say that I love my male heterosexual friends, no homo, so to speak. Um, like, 
that love can somehow be more. Like, should my wife be threatened? Should my wife have doubts about my heterosexuality? Like, why do we feel the obligation to say no homo when I, when we say, I love you, man? Like, why is that a thing in our culture? Um, just, if you, if you are noticing that I'm asking more questions than I am answering, that I am sort of bringing us up to these sort of fundamental, insoluble problems, and then just, like, turning around and being like, oh, well, I guess we'll never know, and then, like, tracking down another different line that will end up in yet another insoluble problem. Yes, that is exactly what I am doing. Um, that is at least partially intentional on my part. What I am very much driving home here, what I said I was driving home at the outset, is how big and broad and problematic all of this is. How, you know, these very fundamental things that we assume about the world, about what we understand about love, just do not make sense at all. Like, at all. I mean, if you sat there, you who are listening to this lecture and you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to count the ten people I love most. What would that list even look like? Like, if I set myself that challenge right now, obviously I would probably pick my wife. I would probably pick my parents, so that's going to complicate things. I'd probably pick, like, my sister, who, you know, that just further complicates things. Speaking of relationships between men and women who are both ostensibly sex or heterosexual and yet have no component of sexuality to them at all, unless we're to trust Freud or Jung or anybody who is concerned with whatever deep thoughts I may be having in my id. Like, I don't think I think of my sister that way, and yet I am told that I need to think of my, like, I don't even know. It's just a giant mess. We're already at four, and I'm already trying to backpedal and backtrack. Um, not to mention the fact that I have lots of close male friends. I have my friend from college who is currently living in the Pacific Northwest, and we talk every week. Like, I would comfortably say that I love him, at least in the context of friendship and all of this, but why do I feel the need to qualify? Somehow, we've gotten to five. And I could probably go further. Maybe a heterosexual female friend. Maybe another heterosexual male friend. Maybe my gay friend out in San Francisco. Like, I could probably list the ten and be no closer to understanding what love means, even in my own life. Like, even just to me. Like, I would comfortably say, yes, I love all ten of these people. My family members, my, you know, wife, my friend, my close friends, male or female, whatever orientation they may have, and feel comfortable saying that, feel fairly obliged to qualify some of those cases, just because we do sort of take as our first, you know, connection point when we are discussing love, the romance, and we sort of recognize that romance is inappropriate in some cases. We don't want to be accused of incest. We don't want to be accused of pedophilia. We do not want to be accused of any of these things. And P.S. I suppose I ought to add to the list the fact that I very much love my seven-year-old nephew as an uncle loves a nephew. Like, alright, this is overwhelming. And that's the point. Like, as much as we might use examples to talk about love, I don't think that's terribly helpful in this case. At least, you know, sitting here talking at my walls. Like, I'll try it again when I'm actually meeting with students. Maybe we'll have better luck. But, like, it's just 
so sprawling, so fast. Um, and I don't think I'm performing like any particular act of, of subterfuge here. I am not deliberately obfuscating. This is not, you know, what is a sandwich? And then we ask, well, is a hot dog a sandwich? Like, I'm not going out of my way to find really weird edge cases here. Like, I am comfortable saying to my nephew, I love you. And he is comfortable saying to me, I love you. And nobody questions this in the moment, in the context. Um, like, that's cool. And yet, talking about it here at my walls to my students, there's a threat. Do you notice that? Like, how many threats exist around this conversation? How many sort of needs to qualify, lest we be misunderstood and therefore be doing something very, very wrong? And much as I want to talk about that, that wrongness, I want to talk about, you know, all of these sort of taboo relationships that we identify with love and sort of hang around the periphery of love. Things like rape or like pedophilia or, you know, any of the taboos that really have endured. Honestly, I don't think I'm up to it. Like, I don't think I'm brave enough to sort of step in and explicitly talk about these relationships that we as a culture have universally condemned, largely because the way that we have decided to talk about them is, as a culture, the way that we understand sexuality and love and the relationships between the two, is that, you know, if you say, I love a 12-year-old girl, everybody immediately jumps to the conclusion, oh, you mean sexually, oh, you're a pedophile, oh, I should call the police. Um, the darkness that I'm talking about here, the, the threat that hangs over this entire conversation, is that we have, on the one hand, our culture is absolutely sex positive. Hey everybody, sexual revolution, you can sleep with whoever you want, as long as they are consenting adults. Um, if they are not, then that's unacceptable. But at the same time, our culture has also always acknowledged, since as early as, I don't even know, as early as the Greeks, perhaps before, as long as Western culture has been, the taboo hanging over sexuality has always been an incitement to sexuality. Having love in a forbidden way has always been characterized as exciting, whether it is, you know, an adulterous man, like, sneaking out of his house to sleep with another woman, in the case of, like, Paris and Helen and the Iliad, to all the way up to Nabokov writing Lolita and talking about this forbidden romance between like a 50-year-old pro college professor and a 12-year-old girl. Like at the one on the one hand we are all just disgusted. No, take it away from us. It is absolute filth. It is pornographic. It is a violation of all that is sacred and good about what love is. And yet it's also titillating and exciting and you better believe that there are fetishists out there who are finding some way to get their Lolita fix. Um, like, how... That rabbit hole itself is so deep and so complicated. Like, when you start talking about love, you usually expect that you're going to talk about romance. You're going to talk about, you know, the, the happy relationships between parents and children, between friends and friends, and yet our culture is so obsessed that I couldn't even get it like five minutes into that conversation without immediately putting in the caveats. Because the threat 
that danger. Like, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe this is just a, a side effect of being a, a white 35-year-old dude at this point in my life. That I am, like, at peak creepiness for potentially, you know, inappropriate sexual relationships. Um, or maybe it's not just me. Maybe, like, everybody feels this sort of threat hanging over them at all times. Like, I don't know. I, I, I've never been anybody else, I'm sorry to say, and thus cannot share their experiences. What I can say is that I do feel that culpable threat. Um, I feel like my words could be misinterpreted and therefore be used as grounds to have the police investigate my life, question my family and friends, challenge me on things that I took for granted. That's really uncomfortable. Um, like, I feel restricted in the sense of talking about this. And I'm not, you know, it's not like, oh boy, look, white dude is restricted in their speech. No, I, I think it's appropriate to feel restricted in this place. Or at the very least, it's something I want to observe and examine. I'm certainly not alone in this. Like, God only knows exactly what, you know, black folks or women are going through and the things that they are restricted about. But this is what I'm getting at. Our society cares about, quote, love with that sort of knee-jerk assumption that it is sexual in nature no matter what it may actually be in fact so deeply we are so concerned with this issue that the most horrifying and uncomfortable laws on the books have to deal with this stuff like I know that we have supposedly had our sexual revolution and are supposedly liberated but I I don't know how liberated this ultimately makes us. I think it just makes the boundaries and the laws and the rules that much trickier. Um, I think the fact that we are talking about sex as much as we do as a culture, just it, it does not actually make it more socially acceptable. If anything, it may be making it less socially acceptable. It may be making the the rules, the bounds, the walls, all that much more rigid, all that much more strongly defined. Um, I don't know. It's, it's tricky, and there is definitely a dark side to this conversation. Um, and what's worse is I have this sneaking suspicion that I'm not going to be able to evade it. Does that make sense? Like, as a 35-year-old white dude who is at peak creepiness, I have a sneaking suspicion that every time we try and honestly talk about this stuff, I am going to feel that threat. Um, that it's just going to be unavoidable. Like, on a personal level and on also a professional level. Like, the fact is that we're all going to feel uncomfortable about this. This is kind of what I was getting at in the syllabus when I mentioned that this is super personal stuff. Like, whatever reason our society has for being thoroughly fascinated and thoroughly disgusted at the same time somehow by one's most private sexual behaviors, whatever the cause is, it makes me all that much more concerned to protect myself. So I don't want to get too deep into this, again, because I do not feel I have the ability or the, the at the very least the discretion to talk about this intelligently. I do want us to be aware of 
that I don't think there are going to be many opportunities where we can talk about sex or love or any of the stuff that our class is supposedly meant to talk about without getting this undercurrent, without sort of tapping into our own cultural assumptions. Um, what I do want to stress, though, is that it's frequently going to be inappropriate. Um, I don't mean that in the sense that like our conversations are going to be inappropriate. I mean that our cultural assumptions are going to be inappropriate. Like, whatever our you know discussion of love might be, I suspect we are going to have Sigmund Freud sitting in the back of our classroom, smoking his cigar and nodding quietly to himself every time that I make one of those hedges. Oh, I have this friend, but we do not have a homosexual relationship. Oh, I love my nephew, but it is not in any way sexual. And Freud is just sitting there nodding in the back. And the reason why I use that is because our culture is obsessed with Freud. Like, we should have put him to rest. I, I, I don't think anyone takes him that seriously, but, you know, like, at least in his fundamental assumptions. But we do take his sort of underlying conclusions very seriously. We do take for granted the idea that all human activity is motivated by sexuality. And that's so fucked up. Like, maybe it's true. Let's give him the, the you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. Let's assume that it is true and that every sexual action, or every action conducted by a human being has, on some level, a sexual motivation. We are all just ids being sort of or we're just sort of being steered around by our id all the time and our drives are all sexual and you know if that's the case why is why are there still sexual taboos like yes it is socially unacceptable for us to you know engage in activities that are beyond the pale of consent for sure but why is it wrong to want them if that is the case like we, when we, you know, accuse somebody of being a pedophile, we're not just disgusted by the fact that, you know, this person did X. We are, if anything, more disgusted by the fact that this person wanted to do X. Wanted to do something so vile and corrupt that we, as a culture, just as a knee-jerk, are disgusted by it. Um, and once upon a time, that probably included homosexuality. Um, keep in mind, like... Things are changing, but the question I'm asking is, like, how far are they changing? How much are they changing? I guess because consenting adults is sort of our, our line in the sand that we as a culture have drawn, then, you know, homosexuality and transgenderism and, you know, all, anything involving that will ultimately be acceptable. You know, maybe at some point we'll even get to the point that we're willing to say, you know, hey, it's totally okay if you murder someone during the sexual act as long as they sign off on it beforehand. Like, maybe that is the end point for our current idea of where sexuality is at. It's certainly striking and shocking to think of at this point for all of the, you know, like, press and quiet discussion of, like, snuff films and stuff. Um, all this to say, you know, the taboos have moved. And what used to be considered disgusting and reprehensible and deviant and aberrant is at least to some degree now socially acceptable and in fact there is kind of a threat the other way that if you are not entirely tolerant of 
you know, a homosexual couple, if you do not, you know, appreciate them the way that you would appreciate a heterosexual couple, then there is something wrong with you there, too. That's kind of all part of the same thing, I suspect. Freud very much introduced this idea that we as human beings are governed by drives we do not consciously understand. We are at all times, in all places, doing things we do not know we are doing. And I really want to push back against this. Like, on a personal level, I want to push back against this because I really do not like the places that this leads us philosophically. But also, just as your professor, we need to push back against this. Because this is a 100-year-old perspective and phenomenon. And the fact of the matter is, when you know Cicero comes out of the gate guns blazing, saying that Gaius Laelius and Scipio Africanus were the best of friends, they were as close as two men could be, and we ask the question, were they gay? The answer is, shut up, you're thinking about this wrong. They might have had sex. It's entirely possible. Lots of Greek men who were friends probably did at one point have sex. And in fact, in those 2,000 years that have transpired through all that medieval, you know, period where supposedly Christianity ruled and everything was so restrictive, that was probably, in all likelihood, like the scholarship jury is out on this one because there is no documentation for fairly obvious reasons, there was probably a lot of homosexual sex going on, especially in the armies, especially behind closed doors, possibly outbreaks of it in monasteries and stuff. Like, all of this is entirely possible, and there's enough evidence that we can assume that it was probably happening. And yet, nobody cared. Like, everybody just kind of collectively looked the other way. We all agree it is wrong. And we expect those people to go to confession, talk to their priest, have the priest assign them penance. A discussion will be had. Things will be rectified. But we didn't talk about it. And that's my point. We didn't assume that they were being governed by some kind of secret impulsive drives. Like, yes, there is that whole sin thing. And that is important in its own right. But that is very different from the idea that we are governed by this sort of id monster that tells us what to do despite the fact that we don't know that we're doing it. See, we live in this really weird time where we as a culture believe that we can look at another person and say, you were not doing what you think you were doing. The reason why you are standing at the front of a philosophy class making apologies for pedophilia is not because you think you are making some kind of conscious, important philosophical argument, but really because you are secretly a pedophile and you are repressing it and you were in denial about it and you were therefore lying to yourself. And that's messed up. Like, it's messed up for us as a culture, the fact that somebody can tell somebody else that they are lying to themselves and therefore wrong about who they are. Like, who in God's name has more authority than the person themselves as to what's going on through their head? Like, just, ugh, that's another conversation for another day. But more importantly, for our purposes, other cultures did not ever assume this. This is a new thing. This is our obsession. This is America and the West going into a collective madness, a collective mania, a collective obsess obsession with sexuality and with this sort of secret double life that we are simultaneously both meant to indulge, but only to a point. 
and simultaneously also supposed to sort of like quietly just ignore like the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing like once upon a time the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing and it was fine and everybody got along perfectly well and they didn't talk about it and life went on now we have to talk about it we have to talk to everybody about it we have you know this sort of constant societal watchdog hanging over our heads at all times so if we say the wrong thing do the wrong thing we see a sign and we report it like i was even trained before i you know before i started uh class this semester I had a whole bunch of outstanding, like, training videos that I had to go through at some of the other schools where I teach, including the se sexual harassment video. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed as I'm watching this, because, again, I've just been, like, doing all of the reading for Love and Friendship, and then I'm getting thrown this sexual harassment video, which, P.S., I've watched, like, six times at this point, and I've practically memorized. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what is this doing like, what is the function here? And yes, protecting people who are being sexually harassed. That's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Good. We do not want sexual harassment. But it is literally turning us, it is training us to be policemen. To be police of each other. Like, if you think about it in terms of, yes, we are protecting people, yes, that's an absolute good. But if you think of it and then turn it, if you think of it in the context of, like, 1984, Big Brother, people watching each other, people reporting each other to the police, to the authorities, to make sure that all this is done, there's something really disturbing about this. You know, yes, we are all responsible for each other's safety, for each other's, you know, well-being. If you see something, say something. Everybody is protected. But at the same time, when did we all become snitches, and when did we all become okay with training each other to be snitches? Like, that's what I want to get at here. So much of what we understand as love, we understand in very tightly restrained boundaries. Um, we, as a culture, have a real problem with somebody saying, I love this person, when it is not within those boundaries when it is purely one-sided, like a stalker. Nope, we can't have that as a culture. Or when it is, you know, outside of the transgressive boundaries, like a pedophilia group, pedophilial relationship. And yet the Greeks would have taken that for granted. Sure, absolutely, old men and 12-year-old boys, keep up the good work. This is part of socialization. What does that mean? Like... Can you say that they are really in love, or does our society get to say no? And who gave our society that authority? So, again, getting off topic, getting way too dark and deep, but I do want to consider this, that our entire conversation of what constitutes love has this sort of dark question, this dark undercurrent to it, because our culture is convinced that love exists licitly, correctly, in certain spaces, and incorrectly in others. And I don't think our culture has an answer to the question, is illicit love still love? Like, I think our gut reaction, because of our training, is to say, yes, illicit love is of course love. Nobody gets to tell people how to love. But then you get to those edge cases. Then you start taking away the, the fig leaf of consent, and 
is it still love? Can someone love another person in this purely one-sided, non-consensual way? I mean, isn't that what a lot of romance is? Like, to give you an example, which is much less creepy than most of the other ones that I've been dealing with here, uh, one of my wife's favorite movies when I met her was You've Got Mail, which is a classic 90s sitcom. Like, classic 90s romantic comedy it stars the tom hanks and meg ryan and the whole like the whole thing in this movie is that like tom hanks owns this bookstore and he's running meg ryan out of business and that sucks but at the same time as this is happening meg ryan is emailing tom hanks not knowing who he is and they're forming this relationship and falling in love with each other and finally tom hanks is the one who picks up on it and tom hanks starts doing what I can only describe as stalking Meg Ryan to orchestrate this big, showy, romantic reveal that, like, everything is resolved and they fall in love with each other and the bookstore is saved and happily ever after. And it creeped the living crap out of me when I saw it the first time. Like, I literally turned to my wife and, he's, and I'm like, this is horrifying. You know, he is literally stalking her. And it is being framed by the movie as this really romantic, super nice, like, loving thing. Because their love is real. And because the music and the, the happiness and the, the, like, brightly lit scenes are all giving us that hint that, as we talked about earlier, these two are supposed to be together. We know they're supposed to be together. The director has as good as told us that they're supposed to be together. And, of course, this was before the decades of, you know, catfishing and online stalking and all the really scary, awful things that people have done to each other using the anonymity of the internet as their protection. Back in the early days of the 90s when the internet was basically just AOL, we were naive and thought that this might also have a romantic dimension to it. And people still love this movie. Like, people still swear that this is, like, their favorite romantic comedy, that it's so romantic that Tom Hanks goes out of his way to, you know, buy Meg Ryan's stuff and protect her, and, like, he's participating in this one-sided, non-consensual relationship. But because we've redrawn the barriers since then, it comes off as horrifying. Like, that's the difference. Which means, on some level, that these barriers are malleable. Which is also kind of horrifying, because the things that we consider so very wrong, who knows, maybe in 100, 200 years, we won't consider them wrong anymore. Like, you know, Wes Anderson has a movie where preteen children kiss and have, like, early sexual relationships. Is that okay? Are we okay with this? Do we need to, like, talk to someone? Like, have a conversation? Do we... Are we having a question about Wes Anderson's sexuality? Is Freud in the back making notes as we're talking about this? Or is it wrong of us to judge? Is it wrong of us to condemn? Is it... There's so much here. It's already overwhelming. And more than just, like, overwhelming in the sense that there are so many different kinds of love or there are so many different ways to define love but even this question who gets to decide whether it's love whether it's right whether it's wrong what you know can love be right or wrong like ah, how are we gonna talk about this for a you know an entire semester 
how are we going to do this? How are these philosophers going to be able to, you know, deal with these issues? And some of them are definitely our own cultures. Like I said, without Freud, maybe this would be a completely different conversation. It certainly looks like it when you see the philosophers talking about it. But also, the philosophers aren't going to get into these questions nearly as much. Again, this is mundane stuff in some sense. This is dark because it is exploring the, you know, parts of our psyche that are blind spots that we refuse to look at, that we, in a sense, have repressed in our conversation. But there's a difference between being able to, like, consciously repress these things, deliberately say, that is something I don't want to talk about, do not want to have a conversation about, and unconsciously repressing these things, unconsciously saying we have the right to say this is love and this is not, this is good and this is bad, this is right and this is wrong, this is licit, this is illicit. Just, we need to be conscious of that. We need to raise that up to our own conscious assumptions. And we need to not judge other cultures based on our standards. When Socrates says that, you know, he has this loving relationship with Alcibiades that is simultaneously friendly and sexual, we have to just roll with this. It's just the way it was. There's no snickering to be had here. He means it. He means it honestly. And unless we are so proud, so bold, so brazen as a culture to say, well, they were, you know, ancient and backwards and they had no idea what they were talking about, why would we say that? Like, who gave us permission to judge what is going on in this dude's life years ago, centuries ago, millennia ago? Um, we're going to have to keep that in mind. Now, the other thing that I want to kind of stress, the other sort of prong of my approach here, now that we've sort of talked about what examples of love we run into and the edge cases that we bump into when we start exploring beyond the bounds of good taste, so to speak, is how do we use the word love? Because we don't even use it consistently. Like, yes, when we said examples of love, we were actually making a really insidious assumption, namely that love is a noun. <laughs> when I say, what is an example of love, our immediate assumption was, okay, let's show people who are, quote, in love. Let's talk about, like, romantic partners or, you know, people who, you know, are in a loving relationship across familial bounds and stuff like that, which we didn't even really get that deep into good grief we're over our heads here. Um, but also, like, love is a verb. People love one another. Like, the most common phrase that uses the word love is probably, I love you. Followed closely by being in love. Which, what? Like, we have this word where it's something that you do to somebody else. You love them. Which implies that it is one-sided. Necessarily. Like, we don't require you to say in your sentence, we loved each other. Like, when you say, I love you, it is something that I, the subject, is doing to you, the object, as an action. It is not only a verb, it is a transitive verb. It is something somebody does to somebody else. And therefore, the other person is an entirely passive recipient of the love in this case. They don't have to do a damn thing, according to the way that our grammar tells us that love works. 
And can we even trust our grammar? Like, this is actually some fairly deep philosophical stuff, and the reason why I get kind of worked up about it is because I am a philosopher of language. Wittgenstein is my dude. Wittgenstein would be all over this. Wittgenstein argues that metaphysics, the entire study of philosophy, basically boils down to, you know, the sort of cul-de-sacs that our grammar forces us into. So when we say, I love you, as this extremely common phrase, when this is sort of, you know, this lens through which we understand so many of our relationships, the fact that the grammar is telling us that it is a one-way transitive relationship where one person loves, i.e. acts upon another person without any need for their reciprocation, that's important. That's important to note. That's probably part of the reason we have so much problem when we start talking about, you know, consent and love. Can someone love another person without their consent? Is that love acceptable? Like, our language tells us, yeah, you can totally love another person without a consent. You don't even need them to be there. I can fall madly in love with a body pillow. Or I can fall madly in love with my own shirt. Like... I can do whatever I damn well please, and I don't need anyone to tell me otherwise. That's how my grammar tells me that love functions. That's how we phrase the act of love. But at the same time, our culture says, whoa, 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 back it up. That's not love. Yes, that is a grammatical eccentricity, but that's because the word itself, oh shit, is broken. Oh, no! The word itself is broken. We're in this place where we can literally say that we don't have any idea what we're saying when we say, I love you? What? How are we supposed to function now? Like, how are we supposed to talk about this thing which we not only am, are not certain that it exists, are not certain where the boundaries lie, but also, like, the very way that our words work is now malfunctioning. Like, we... It took us an hour! Like, usually in the study of philosophy, like, people don't start talking about the limitations of words until well on into their dialogue. Like, Plato, he gets into, you know, what if the ideal forms are just a grammatical eccentricity, like, well into his entire philosophic study in the Parmenides, in the Timaeus, in the Theotetus, his late works. Like, it's been years that Plato has been kicking over these ideas, and now all of a sudden he comes to this idea, well, maybe the words aren't what we think they are. It took us an hour! One hour! All we had to do was look at the word love for one hour, and it immediately broke down. It fell apart. It doesn't work. Ah! What are we supposed to do? And never mind the fact, like, that was just the verb form. What does it mean to be in love? Like, in love, like you're in a box, or in a house, or in a pool. Like, as though you're immersed in it. Like, it just surrounds you, and overcomes you, and, and becomes you know, all-consuming. Like, this is how we view love. That's why we have this phrase. To be in love. What does that mean about our assumptions about love? That this idea that, like, we treat love as something that you can fall into. That just strikes you unawares. But is simultaneously something you consciously do. I love you. Like, the word just... It leads us into all of these dead ends, all of these blind alleys. 
when I took on this class, like, to sort of step back for a moment, when I took on this class, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like, I've run into various texts on love and friendship at various times. As I said in the syllabus lecture, like, I've read and translated the symposium. I, I've bumped into this stuff frequently, but I've never studied it very seriously. Like, not the way that I've studied philosophy of language or ethics or any of the texts that I teach in intro, not the way that I've studied many of the classes that I've actually taken on the subject, largely because I didn't want to. Like, I wanted to avoid this subject. I knew it was going to be fuzzy, and I didn't trust anything that anyone was going to say to me about it. And after having spent the last month just reading and reading and reading and reading and studying and studying and looking stuff up and researching and compiling all of these lists of readings for you to read, which I think are simultaneously representative but simultaneously extremely unrepresentative and just wildly short of what's actually going on here, I'm very much overwhelmed. And I don't see a way out. Like, I'll just say that right here at the outset. I don't think we can come to conclusions. Like, if you are going to take this class in the hopes of coming up with a philosophy of love, something that you can articulate and cleverly talk about and compartmentalize and understand and define, you are very much going to be disappointed. Because I am not the guy who is going to walk you through that. No. I am all about these blind alleys. I am convinced that you cannot talk about love for more than an hour and a half in any circumstance with any degree of authenticity and truth to it and come to any conclusion beyond the fact that this is just a powerful, profound mystery. That's literally all I've got. Like, you could leave my class right now and probably be no better off as far as understanding love than you would be if you sat through everything and listened to everything. I'll, I'll just... Like, I know that that's an absolutely insane thing for a professor to admit at the beginning of the class, that I'm literally going to teach you nothing. That you will be just as poorly off if you left now as you would be if you stuck through the entire class. It's insane. It's positively insane. I believe in the power of education. I believe that philosophy is a worthwhile discipline. I believe that by reading all these texts, you will be enriched. I still believe that. But you're not going to actually know any more about love than you did when you started. You're not. Like, maybe that's my cynicism coming through, which is surprising because I'm usually not all that cynical. I usually am really optimistic about what you can get out of these texts. But seriously, like, this is bigger than that. This is huge. This is enormous. Every single writer who is writing about love, who is writing about friendship in this class, and honestly, if I had to pick between the two, I'd probably pick love. It's probably more concrete. Friendship is even fuzzier. Uh, but all of this is, like, you read these texts and there is a sense that, yes, you are getting some real insight. You are actually talking about this stuff. You are actually looking at it and examining it and trying to understand it better and trying to sort of understand yourself better in a very real sense. But at the same time, it is all falling woefully short. It is all leaving me with this conclusion that it's not something you can talk to an answer about, if that makes sense. Like, the fact of the matter is, people will spend their entire lives in therapy trying to sort out 
how their lives work and still fail and you know succeed in some dimensions but not actually come to some perfect understanding of the way that love works like yes we can compartmentalize it yes we can sort of try and come up with successful strategies and you know people have observed successful strategies i think there are better ways to love in some cases than in others and i will insofar as i can walk you through that but insofar as we try and understand love not as something that we do in our own lives but as this cultural phenomenon this thing that you know western writers and poets and philosophers and sociologists and psychologists and and so far as we've been examining it endlessly for centuries, I don't think we are any closer to a conclusion, to a solution. I think it is all tricks. I think we have walked into a theater where the magician at the front of the stage is presenting us with nothing but illusion. And every time we grasp, every time we try and reach towards something that's real, it turns out to be just hallucination or illusion. Some trick of the mind or collective consciousness I don't think we're going to come to an answer I don't think we can to be perfectly honest I think the word love is broken I don't think it represents something that they're like it's a word that just does not map onto the human experience like yes we are using it to describe our experience and some pretty much unhelpful ways most of the time as I'm trying to express when I stress that you know here we are in all these blind alleys here is I love you is this unreciprocal thing but our culture is sort of pushing back in against this I think in this case you know when Plato talks about a word he is assuming that that word has some transcend transcendent meaning this ideal form behind it this reality that the word is getting at. But I think more obvious than any other word in the English language, when you try and understand what the word love is pointing to, you are going to come up empty. Because it's just not consistent. Like, we could say, hey, all of the relationships we've talked about to this point, you know, the relationship between two lovers, heterosexual, homosexual, or whatever configuration it turns out to be, polyamorous, polygamous, whatever, all of that is love, but also the relationship between the father and child is love, and, you know, the relationship between friends is love, the relationship between me and a lobster dinner is love, like, all of that has some similarity, some commonality running through it, that the love, word love does in fact have something resembling meaning. But at the end of the day, we're right back to friggin' Merriam-Webster where it says a strong connection, a strong affection, a strong feeling. If we try and put all of the ways that we use this word together into a heap, we're just going to drown. That's what I'm basically getting at here. There isn't a good definition of love. We cannot map it to our experience in a way that is exact or even all that helpful. We do, at the end of the day, know it when we see it. And that's like the best we can say about it. So the question then becomes, if love is a broken word, how do we fix it? How do we, how do we solve this problem? How do we get around it? Do we 
you know, further compartmentalized? Do we have multiple different kinds of love? Do we very consciously use it in only certain circumstances and adopt other words like liking someone to sort of do the work in other cases? Do we need separate terms for the relationship between father and son, for the relationship between uncle and nephew, for the relationship between friend and friend, so as to keep that threat of, you know, something being wrong at bay? Would that help? And the good news is, a lot of people have tried that. And in fact, English is kind of weird that it doesn't do that. Um, the Greeks, who we will be studying extensively, actually have three words for love. Arguably more, depending on what you constitute love in the English language to actually be able to refer to, it being as broad as it is. Um, the three words for love that are usually thrown around in Greek are eros, which refers to erotic love, i.e. anything that is sexual. But keep in mind, it is not just lust. Like, the Greeks have a different word for just physical attraction. That's, that's something else. Eros means love in the sense of a deep personal connection, in the sense of a relationship that one has with a loved one. But it also has sex as a fundamental part of its behavior. And that does not mean that it is exclusive of any of the other kinds of love. One can be eros and philia at the same time. Um, but eros explicitly refers to romantic love erotic love, love that has some kind of sexual edge to it, so to speak. Um, philia, the other one that I was talking about, is what is frequently known as brotherly love or friendly love. So for example, our city, Philadelphia, as poorly named as it might be, it is known as the city of brotherly love because Philadelphia is literally Greek for phila, brotherly love, city, Delphi. Um, so that's helpful. We have two different kinds of loves. We have erotic love and we have philia. So we don't have to worry about being confused. We don't have to say, you know, my philia and I, no homo. Like, obviously, if you are philia, it's not, but in fact, the Greeks are totally okay with their philias also being their eroses. So whatever, they just don't care is what it comes down to. Why do you need to specify that it's no homo? Why can't you mix and match your eros and your philia as far as the Greeks are concerned? But conveniently enough, they do have separate words, so maybe that, again, we're, we're getting a little bit closer to clarity. The last word that the Greeks use for love, which is pretty much co-opted by the Christians when they show up because it was kind of underutilized up until the Christians showed up, is agape. And agape is what is frequently translated as charity. It is Christian love, unconditional love, love that transcends eros and philia. And, weirdly enough, both of our Greek scholars, Plato and Aristotle, will talk about agape. And in fact, the idea that you can have a love that transcends both sexuality and friendship, that transcends all worldly need, this idea of a platonic love, so to speak, Usually it's agape that we're referring to in that case. Plato very much insists that true, real, meaningful love is beyond purely, like, temporal needs. It is bigger than that. Um, and we'll talk about that in both the Symposium and in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where he's sort of kicking around some of the same ideas. So, does this help? We have three terms for love now. We have philia, we have eros, we have agape. 
the philia, brotherly and friendly love, eros, romantic and erotic love, agape, unconditional charity, like Christian transcendental love, perfect love, some might argue. Um, and we frequently use these terms, especially we philosophers. We love to sort of break down our love into these multiple kinds so we can talk about it a little bit more specifically because it clears up a lot of the problem between love that we have identified in our foregoing conversation. That hopefully is very helpful, but it also doesn't solve the problem. Remember, you can mix and match these kinds of loves when you're a Greek. You can, you know, feel agape toward your wife for the Christians, even though that is fundamentally an erotic relationship. And in fact, you should. Paul is arguing in the New Testament that agape is what you should feel for all your neighbors and brothers and possibly also other people, depending on various theological considerations. Um, the Greeks were absolutely okay with mixing and matching their philia and their eros. As we said, you can be friends and you can also be lovers. That is totally fine. Heck, you can feel all three for a given person under certain circumstances. Um, the trick is two of those will probably wane, whereas agape should theoretically be permanent, be all always eternal, arguably. Um, but I also don't think this is comprehensive. Like... C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, adds another one, namely affection, and he refuses to give it second billing. Um, like, he insists at, in his introduction that, you know, oops, I was initially going to say that, like, there are good and bad kinds of love. There's, you know, great, true Christian love, agape, and then, like, eros and philia and affection were, were sort of secondary, and affection is the weakest of the bunch. But at the end of the day, after thinking about it some more, he concluded that, no, all four of these kinds of love are super important. So in addition to our eros, philia, and agape, we can add affection. You know, what a person feels for someone beneath them, in a sense. What I feel for my students, because I could not very well call it either eros or philia or even agape to some degree because we lack that intensity. I am affectionate. I love my students in an affectionate way. That is acceptable to Lewis. So he separates it, and now we've got four different kinds of love. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't solve the problem. Like, yes, we can subdivide love, and we can make it a little bit more specific, a little bit more bite-sized, a little bit more easy to grab onto. But now we have boundaries that we can argue about. Like, when is... When does love become erotic? What, like, what is the deciding characteristic that changes erotic love to friendly love, or vice versa? Um, can we literally just make it into a feeling, or is it more complicated than that? And what about that whole love as a verb thing? You know, all of these Greek words are in fact verbs. They are in fact meant to be something that you do to another person. Should we stress that it needs to be reciprocal in order to be proper agape? Whereas eros can be something that you feel towards, you know, the poster you hang up in your room. Or, you know, a person who you've only ever seen in the movies. Like, are those acceptable forms of love? Eros, in this sense. And for that matter, if our sort of Englishization of these terms, our sort of adoption of eros and philia and affection into our like love language canon, we're likely to get confused. We're likely to use eros to describe what is essentially lust. 
if only because it is closer to lust than any of our other terms at this point, and the boundaries there are once again vague and ambiguous. But what's more, it gets complicated because there's so many different kinds of relationships even within those boundaries. Like, when I said, who are the ten people who I love the most and I'm starting to count on my fingers, yes, I can point to relationships that have fundamentally different characteristics under this scheme. Yes, I love my wife in an Eros way, but I don't love my parents in an Eros way. Do I love them in a filia way, an agape way, an affection way? I don't know. That's, you know, again, like, the categories don't seem to line up very neatly here. Um, but what's more, you know, what do you say about a woman who you have always felt a little bit of longing for, but who is primarily a friend? Like, I'm a heterosexual dude, and I suspect it is not abnormal to say that, yes, I have friends who are women who I, at least at one point in time, either dated, like, that literally happened in my life, and I can't imagine that's terribly uncommon in your own, but also women who I sort of always carried a torch for, and grew happy being friends with them, but at one point would have definitely said that my relationship or my love for them was, at least to some degree, erotic. Um, it's complicated. It's tricky. And I suspect, at the end of the day, the best way of successfully describing one's love relationships would be to make every single one of them unique and distinct. Because you experience them as unique and distinct. If we're in fact going to talk about love as though it is a feeling, then we have to acknowledge the fact that every feeling differs from every other feeling based on context or your circumstances or just what it is that bubbles up in your emotions when you see this person who you care about. Um, so, and then that, again, should probably be separated from love the verb. Like, one of the things that I do, in fact, want to stress in this class, one of the things that I do want to stress in the face of all of our sort of cultural discussion about love is that increasingly we see love as an emotion, as something you feel, as something you fall into and fall out of, as something that you experience as though it were as a bystander. Um... Whereas my experience with love is that it is something you do actively. Um, and it is, I build that based on my experience with a lot of the philosophers we've read in this class. Love is something you do deliberately, in my opinion. And I think we can talk about it way more effectively, way more usefully, if we talk about it as an action. Because as much as, you know, a bunch of, my students, I anticipate you came to this class hoping to talk about love and friendship with perhaps some idea in the back of your mind that maybe this would help you become better lovers, better friends, that this would help you sort of clarify your own understanding of the subject. I will be 100% honest with you, I am never going to be able to clarify your feelings to you. Like, nope, not something I can do because I will never feel the same feelings that you feel. I feel my feelings, you feel your feelings, they are different sets of feelings, and no, like, there's never going to be some objective standard by which we can compare them. We can say, yes, what you feel describing your, you know, what it is that you feel both in your mind and in your body when you see a person that you care about 
is at least remotely comparable to the way that I feel in my mind and in my body when I see somebody that I care about, we can say, yes, there is an analogous relationship here, but at the end of the day, like we're never going to be able to truly compare notes. It is going to be purely subjective. Feelings always will be. Actions, however, we can talk about. And I want to. Like, I want to badly. Uh, because I think that this is the thing that I am most worried about and the most able to help with is when it comes to how do you love other people. I think there are good and bad ideas there. I think we can talk about what works and what doesn't work. I mean, that's why therapy is, in fact, an effective thing to do in this world. Like, why people do this is because it does, in fact, help them. It helps make their relationships better. You can love someone badly. You can hurt them with your love. I have. Um, and you can be hurt by them in your love. I've done that as well. Um, this is normal. It's also something we have some degree of control over. Like, you can't control how you feel about people. Maybe you can to some degree, and I'd highly recommend you practice that. Like, practice a sort of discipline of your emotions and, and a feeling. Like, we'll get into that. Um, but, again, like... If you were randomly sitting on a bus and somebody gets onto the bus and you just immediately have this attraction to them, like, no one can do anything about this. It's too quick. And this does happen. Like, it happens. 2,500 and more years of poetry can't be completely wrong about this subject. Uh, especially when so many people find it so meaningful. Um, so if that is the case, if people can, in fact, fall in love at first sight, well... God help them. Like, that's all there is to say about it. That's all I can offer in way of advice. Good luck to you, and hopefully you won't destroy your life or theirs or both or whatever. Please do not Thelma and Louise yourselves at the end of this. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, I guess that would also be acceptable. Um, the point here is I want to sort of steer a lot of our conversations, and we'll probably feel the obligation to steer a lot of our conversations towards practicality towards love as verb, towards how do we love people and not how, what is this feeling that causes us to feel affection and love for one another. Because um, we can't quantify the latter one of those, but we can do something about the former. We can become better people, better lovers, better friends. We can care about people more unselfishly. Um, as much as Freud may sit in the back saying, hmm, I don't know about this unselfish love nonsense. We can get past Freud, I hope. If we can't, well, then God help us all, and there is no point in trying to govern our actions. And let us all just have chaos and be madness and let nature rise. Like, let's just give up the game. If we're going to love deliberately, it's going to be love the verb, and not so much love the feeling. Um, so... In all of our discussion, I think we do have some useful categories, understandings, sort of discussion to be had. Like, as much as this has been a bunch of blind alleys and dead ends, as much as this has been complication after complication, as much as we have spent as much time in the woods and the weeds as in the broad light of day trying to talk about love, I do think we have some useful divisions to talk about. I think we have some useful ideas to navigate around. I think it is important to be very conscious of the sort of threats hanging over our conversation and as much as possible to dispel them, to drive Freud from the room, 
when we were talking about this stuff, because otherwise we're just going to endlessly navel gaze and never successfully say anything effective. Um, I think also the use, the distinction between love the feeling and love the action is really helpful. I hope it proves helpful. I certainly know it's going to guide my understanding of all of this as we proceed forward. Um, at the very least, again, we can love deliberately. We can affect it. We can change it. We can be intentional about it. Um, but at the same time, I do want to stress, it's only so far. Like, when we're knee-deep in these texts, there's not going to be a way out. We're frequently going to be in the same blind alleys and, and dark woods that we were in today. Um, and I think... Like, one of the guiding principles behind my selection for the texts in this class is how much these writers do manage to get out of those woods. Um, how much we are able to do more than just describe what we feel or sort of point fuzzily at this thing that we assume everybody experiences, which may or may not be true. Um, the one thing that I do want to sort of end on here is that the woodsiness of our conversation isn't going to be that big a deterrent. Like, the guiding thread behind my choices more than any other single thing was to give you a cross-section. I'm not going to try and solve love for you, and I don't recommend that you try and solve love for yourself. Like, yes, get some new conclusions absolutely let's think about this love as action thing and think about how we can become better at love but the main goal here is not to talk about love in terms of what it is versus what it isn't what is good love versus bad love what is licit versus illicit right versus wrong condemned versus acceptable none of that just push it out of your mind Instead, what I think we will be able to do, hopefully with some aplomb, is look at the way that it's changed. Look at love not as a philosopher in a certain sense, but as a historian, as an anthropologist, as a sociologist. What does love mean in these various cultures? How has that meaning changed over time? And, for that matter, and perhaps most importantly, how does that inform us? How are our obsessions and concerns and fears and threats bound up with all of these ideas of love? Because if we do want to dispel Freud from the room, if we do want to exercise him from our minds and love freely without wanting to get concerned with what is acceptable and unacceptable, whether we're being driven by unconscious malicious drives or whether there are in fact like some kind of good motivation at the end of the day, whether we can control our urges or not, if we are going to have any hope of that, we have to start by dispelling our cultural assumptions. And the only way that we can dispel our cultural assumptions is to dispel the cultures that inform them back and back and back and back. We need to know where we came from. We need to know where we've been. We need to know how we got here. And in a sense, that hopefully will give us an idea of where we're going as well. That should help us to maybe do a little bit of steering 
in this giant mess that is history and the giant push forward that is trying to sort out our emotions and feelings. If we are going to command this ship, we need a map, in short. And I've got one, happily enough. It's not perfect. A lot of it will be very much conjecture and extrapolation. But we will get a glimpse of our trajectory. And that's a good thing. Um, it's also something that we can actually like talk about without getting completely over our heads. So that's good too, because it did not take us long in this conversation to get very much out of our depth. That's the difference between studying philosophy and doing philosophy, I think. And I always like to sort of give us a hint of actual doing philosophy actually looking at our experience, trying to understand it, trying to sort of expose it rationally or otherwise, to talk about it in a way that is intelligible and communicable, that's important work. But in order to do philosophy well, it's usually a good idea to study philosophy first. So today we're, we did a little philosophy prematurely. For the next bunch of weeks, we're going to start studying philosophy so we can do it better next time around. For next time, we are going to read Foucault's History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Foucault was a great 1980s thinker who wrote a lot about sexuality, love, power, and a lot of the things that we ran into today. Um, and he fortunately has this very nice introduction in this first book, um, which is conveniently excerpted in the Foucault Reader, which I have distributed online. Um, we are just going to read two different sections. The we other Victorians and the repressive hypothesis, which will hopefully give us an idea of how Foucault understands the history of talking about sexuality up until this point, which is what I want you to look for. I want you to see Foucault's method. I want you to see how he is talking about it, why he chooses the examples he does, and how he reaches his conclusion, even more than the conclusion itself. Like, we'll talk about his conclusion for sure, but we're going to emulate his method. And that's what's really important. So next time, read some Foucault, and we will talk about it in class. Till then, I hope I have not totally traumatized you on the subject of love. I hope that you can stagger out of here intact. Um, good luck, and I look forward to talking more soon.